First of all, good morning. Thank you for getting here this early and welcome back to the Third Coast Festival Conference. Um, a couple announcements just to let you guys know some things going on. We have a really full day full of many surprises, so I um, hope you'll hang in there with us. I know it was sort of a late night for some of us, and um, I want to thank you all, those of you who came out for the cabaret last night. It was a really special evening. I don't know if it's widely known, but that was the first live performance by the books, and I want to thank them and Gregory Whitehead again for really, really providing, and Anna, and Anna Fritz, all of them providing just a, a very amazing, all we were hoping for, experience in an evening. Um, so if you see them today, pats on the backs all around. Um, there's tapes and CDs available. You can order tapes and CD copies of all of the sessions happening this weekend. So for your friends who haven't, might not make it to this session, for instance, um, encourage them to catch up later, but hopefully everyone will filter in. You can do that out in the lobby. Um, fill out some order forms, and I'm sure they'll send them to you post-haste. Um, I also need for the youth to remember to meet in the lobby after this session by 10.45. So please uh, keep that in mind. We will re really need you there right then. Um, and I think that's all the housekeeping announcements. Cell phones at least to vibrate, if not off, please. And uh, I think we're going to get going. So. Um, this next panel this morning, or first panel of the morning, uh, posed a pretty serious challenge as we began to invite producers um, to be part of it because basically we approached people, some of whom we hardly knew, and asked them to come share some of their most memorable radio train wrecks, basically. Um, so perhaps you can imagine the awkwardness involved to come talk about your mistakes. Um, but really it wasn't a problem because everyone that we approached was accomplished enough and skilled to know the inherent value in some of those mistakes. So we felt comfortable in the end talking with them. So you're going to hear from them right now in a discussion led by the amazing Gwen Maxi, who brings her mistakes expertise to the stage, not just from radio, but from TV and print as well, <laughs> all of which are fields Gwen has spent time in but excelled in ways that far eclipse some of her small, less than optimal decisions, I'm sure. Um, so please welcome Gwen and producers Barrett Golding, Katie Davis, and Michael Johnson for a discussion of sonic slip-ups and what might be gleaned from them. Well, as you might be able to predict, I'm not quite sure what to make of this whole thing because on the one hand, I'm so thrilled and honored to be here in front of so many people and who are so talented and so creative. And yet, it's painfully clear that Johanna and Julie feel that I am the foremost expert of all those people on mistakes, humiliations, errors, and generally feeling like an idiot. Um, before we get started, I have a request. I'd like you all to get up, take your clothes off, sit back down because that's what we're about to do and I think really it would make us all feel that much more comfortable. Um, the subject today is mistakes which we all know come in many shapes and sizes. If you're really unlucky they can be very public like the time um, uh, a cutter left a out cue in on morning edition and the out cue was like it was a Bob Edwards talking to himself and it was like this. 
Just read the copy, Bob. Shit! <laughs> and then I was told that the executive producer came running after him in the hall screaming, I want your resignation now! <laughs> well, okay, the producer. <laughs> anyway, um, or they can be the very private kind, like um, one time when I was first started out and I had been interviewing a room full of adult incest survivors and uh, I, we were like an hour into recording and I looked down and I realized that I had plugged my microphone into my headphone jack and of course nothing was usable and I, you know the heat just starts rising from your knees and ugh. so there's so many different kinds of mistakes but we're here to talk about um, <laughs> We're here to talk about what we can learn from them, what we can do with them, and uh, what we, um, you know, as our mother said, learn from them. Um, since, you know, Julie and Johanna are pretty much right, um, I have made a career out of humiliating myself on the radio and um, airing my most embarrassing moments. I thought that it was only right as the moderator that I would take the first bullet. Um, so I'm about to play a two-and-a-half-minute excerpt of a piece that I did, um, and you'll see how the mistake was eventually worked into the piece. It was a warm day in June 1994. The farm team for the Chicago White Sox, the Prince William's Cannons, were playing minor league baseball in Prince William County, Virginia. I went to see them. My friends and I were a little late. Just as we were paying for our tickets, the national anthem came on. Everybody stopped what they were doing and faced the flag. No one moved, no one spoke, not the ticket lady, not the people in line, not the little leaguers who were playing in the joining fields. It was like they were in reverie, but the woman singing was terrible, horrible. Couldn't carry a tune to save her proverbial life. Now, anyone knows that if you're going to sing the national anthem, you have to do two things. One, you have to start low. Two, you have to know the words. After she finished, I just shook my head. I turned to my friends and I said, I could do that. Turns out, I couldn't. And now, ladies and gentlemen, would you please rise, take off your caps as we honor America with our national anthem. It's performed by Quinn Mexide. Oh, say can you see I started too high. Light. What so proudly we watched. Watched? Watched? It's hailed! Hailed! Everybody knows that. As soon as the word came out of my mouth, I saw the pitcher snap his head to look at the first baseman. I could see a cartoon-like thought bubble actually appear over his head. It read, where do they get these people? And still, words just kept coming out of my mouth. I just prayed they were the right ones. You get the point. Let's move on. It was 
years over. I wandered back to my seat in a daze, wondering if they played help after every performance of the national anthem or if it was meant for me personally. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even in a dark room all by myself, I still have to cover my face when I hear that piece. <clears throat> all right. Well, we are here to humiliate ourselves, open ourselves up to all kinds of ridicule, to humble ourselves before you, and to tell you of our worst mistakes. We've all made them, and we've tried to forget about them. We're going to see what we can learn from them. Can we make them, can we make, can we use the mistakes to make your piece more informative, more creative, more interesting, less stereotypical? Three veteran producers here to talk about it. I'm going to introduce them to you if you don't already know them. Barrett Golding, on my far right, has a bio this long, but he insisted I shorten it, and here's what he wanted. Barrett Golding is curator of hearingvoices.com. <laughs> Barrett, what are some of the worst mistakes you've ever made? Um, the worst mistakes. Yeah, talk right into the mic. Oh, the worst mistakes this. I've ever made. Well, you know, um, that would be one. Yeah. <laughs> talk into the talk mic. Talk into the mic. Well, I was. I can't think about it like that because. Um, those are, you know, the, the little mistakes like that are inconsequential unless you get a piece like that out of it. But I, I think about the fact that as I've gotten older and better at my craft, I tend to make less mistakes. And as a result, my, worse, my work is getting worse and worse and worse and will continue to get worse until I can figure out how I used to make the mistakes that would form the pieces that, I mean, the so much of what I love about some of my earlier stuff came from mistakes, and I, I don't know how to repeat that, and I pretty much think I'm doomed down. <laughs> <laughs> you can't try something new and put yourself in a perilous position. Well, that's what I talked to a couple of the uh, you know younger producers out there, Jonathan Mitchell and Ben Walker, and both said, well, just try something new. And I said, there is nothing new. It's all been tried. It's collage, <laughs> montage, the French, like, you know, cataloged it a long time ago for film. and. And every time I approach a thing, I know what, you know, I know what most producers have done, have saw how they've solved a storytelling problem or an audio art problem. And it's just like uh, Michael Johnson was telling that old joke about the comedians who have the, the, the numbers. You know, I don't know if you've heard that, but they, they've told so many jokes, they just have numbers for each one. And that's what it's like, oh, I'll try number 15 collage slash montage on this. And, <laughs> and uh, but I was thinking about that. And I'm, I'm thinking now, since I came here, maybe that's not so true. Maybe it's not. I mean, Aaron Zim, if you know him, he has tried something and successfully done something new, Quiet American. So, uh, you know, maybe I won't get there, but at least other people will. <laughs> All right. Well, Katie Davis, to my right, <clears throat> had a, has a grant from CPB to produce a series of radio pieces called Neighborhood Stories, which explores the neighborhood she grew up in. I'm sure you've heard her work. Um, she has this approach to storytelling has grown out of her 19-year background in public radio and more recent work since 1994 as a community activist in Adams Morgan, her inner city neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Um, her pieces are heard on This American Life, All Things Considered, The Next Big Thing. She's also the founder of the Urban Rangers Recycle of Bicycle Youth Corps. She works with some 50 people in her neighborhood, ranging in the ages from 10 to 22 years old. And in this role, she does a bit of everything with them, including coaching basketball, tutoring, counseling, and matching kids with mentors, internships, and jobs. 
Katie, okay. your worst um, mistakes? I want to say that I, I, I wish I was more like Barrett and I was friends with my mistakes, but my mistakes, they're not funny, they stink, <laughs> you know, they just sit there and haunt me. And I'll share some of them over the next hour with you guys. But, um, but uh, uh, when I was a young cutter at Weekend All Things Considered, I first got into radio, I used to have to run upstairs and pull the archive tape out of the library. And this was on, you know, Saturday or Sunday, and the place was pretty desolate. But there was all been this man up there, and he had a very thick shock of black hair, and he was carrying boxes and boxes of Ampex tape, you know, over to some um, editing booth. And, you know, after I'd gone up there a couple times, and he was always there, I asked downstairs, I said, who is that guy up there? Because usually no one else was in the building. Well, it was Joe Frank, and he was going in and changing his mistakes in the pieces <laughs> that had already been archived. And I said, that's my kind of guy. <laughs> so, but, um, <laughs> and I still aim to do that. <laughs> but um, one quick mistake I can, I can tell you so many, but one quick one I can remember is that, um, again, this is when I was a, a, a tape cutter, a producer on Weekend All Things Considered and just getting going. The host was Lynn Neary. And she wanted to do a story about how a, a new politician, somebody who enters politics, what are they actually able to accomplish? And so we went down to North Carolina, to Rocky Mount, North Carolina, to um, talk to Eva Clayton. She was the first African-American elected to Congress in her district. And we ended up doing this story, and we found the issue was this complex issue about this hospital and health care. Well, the whole thing went on the air, and I, I knew something was wrong with it, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And um, it went on the air, and it was just kind of boring. And we, we didn't bring her to life or that issue to life uh, of uh, the hospital or of what does a young politician do. And it was done, and Noah Adams came back and found me, and he said, you should have chosen something small, like the fact that she couldn't get a road paved. And he was right, and it was only afterwards, you know, so... And, you know, that's one of my long list of mistakes. <clears throat> <All right. laughs> Back to <Well>. you, Gwen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Michael Johnson has produced music programs for more than 13 years, KALW and on KALW and KPFA, has covered Native American issues as an associate producer, editor, and digital mix engineer for Spirits of the Present, the legacy from Native America. For Radio Smithsonian and the Native American Public Broadcasting Consortium, he's trained many of the best and brightest producers and radio reporters in public radio in intermediate and digital production through his years at Western Public Radio, which is where we first met a long time ago. Uh, he was also the associate producer for Legacies, Tales from America, a documentary series for NPR. He served on assignment in Managua, Nicaragua, during the Contra-Sandinista Civil War. He's also been a freelance producer reporter for the BBC, a training consultant for NPR, and general manager of KLW-FM San Francisco, and most recently, digital training manager and produ producer of Hot Soup at KQED uh, in San Francisco. Michael's going to reveal for us now some of his most embarrassing moments. Yes, well, um, <coughs> I've had a few. Uh, though I try to cover them up as best I can. It started pretty early when I was a young child, 
and I took apart the family vacuum cleaner, and I knew that I would get the crap beat out of me <laughs> if I didn't put it together, uh, back together in the proper way. So I did, and that was an early uh, thing that I learned to cover these up as well as I could. Um, sometimes, though, when you get into broadcasting, you tend to do these things on the air. And one thing I can remember is um, this uh, fellow who wrote a book called Imperial San Francisco. His name is Gray Brecken. Very interesting book about how cities are put together, how empires and financial institutions kind of form cities. Of course, I was calling him Gay Brecken through the entire interview, and he didn't correct me until the end. Uh, that, was, that was a little distressing. Um, I have uh, disrespected one of Chicago's finest citizens. Um, and wh why don't we just play that uh, track number two? Track two. This is Michael Johnson, and I have the pleasure of welcoming into the studio today a voice who, well, a person who needs no introduction, but for the purposes of demystifying the process, we will introduce him uh, now. This is a, a voice that will be instantly recognizable, and someone who has graced our airways for many years now. And I'm speaking of uh, Studs Terkel, and Studs, welcome to KALW. Thank you very much, Michael Johnson. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Uh, over the years, uh, you have been, uh, how many years have you been broadcasting on WFMT? Well, that's taking about 43 years. Yeah, 1952. Things are going along pretty swimmingly until Studs comes up with this little thing, which no, sends I me into terror. Call it an art, perhaps. I think it's a craft, a skill like a good cabinet maker. You have to come equipped with tools and equipment, so I prepare. Like if an author writes a book, or if I respect that author, I've got to read the book. I can't fake it, but how I try. So you'll find one of my books of a guest full of all sorts of hieroglyphics and wild graffiti. Won't know what they mean, but it's been something to me. And it's just listening. I think if there is a secret, it's very simple. Listening. Sometimes you listen, might even listen to a pause. Why often does an African-American person laugh at a certain moment? Now, at the moment of laughter comes at a bitter recollection. Uh, my bitter recollection at that moment was that I hadn't read his book. <laughs> and uh, here was the uh, perhaps the greatest interviewer of all time who at any moment during this interview I was sure was going to stand up on the table and yell, you're a fraud, Michael Johnson. Yeah, yeah, the reason why you're even here is because the unions, the unions, the, the, they, they, the, the 40-hour work week is... <laughs> I... The interview actually went really great, but I was flying completely uh, by the wire there, and just, just any moment now I was sure that stuff was going to, you know, on page 63, Michael, <laughs> this, did you read that thing on page 63? <clears throat> it, it never came up, thank God, and uh, Studs actually enjoyed the interview, and now it's on public record, Studs, wherever you are. Oh, it's going to burst in the door any moment. Um, <laughs> So uh, that was a fine moment where this uh, sort of thing of flying by the wire came off well. There was another moment that did not come off so well. It was when I interviewed James McBride, who wrote the wonderful book, uh, The Color of Water, an African-American uh, tribute to his um, white uh, mother. Um, James arrived at the studio late. This was at the end of his tour. He started on the East Coast. He had a head cold. He was asleep uh, when I arrived out there because he went past the station break and I was on the air. He was asleep and just, you know, head back and, oh, you know, completely like this. I had to wake him up to get him into the studio there. Um, 
he was not feeling too good here. You know, the head cold was pretty serious. And we sit down in the studio. Now, at the same time, I hadn't read James's book. I had gleaned James's book. But at the same time, I had read a little more thoroughly a book by Johnny Spain. Now, they're really different people. <laughs> Aside from the fact that they're both biracial, that was, you know, hey, you know. So I took a, a pretty crucial fact of Johnny Spain's life and inserted it into James McBride's life and asked it as my first question. <laughs> like, James, how did you feel when, you know, your, you know, your mother had to send you away to California? Of course, you know, she did nothing of the sort. She raised him and his 11 brothers and sisters quite well. Thank you. And James just kind of, he went ballistic. He just was like, what do you mean? You didn't read the book. Where is it? You know, and this, this, and just, I said, look, look, look I'm sorry. I, look, I, and I explained the situation, you know, Johnny Spain turned down and we're reading the book at the same time. I'm sorry I have to do these things. So, so you know, how did your mother feel when she was raising the, how do you think she felt? <laughs> well, you know, I said, James, you know, why don't we just call this a draw? <laughs> I stopped the tape. I immediately destroyed it, and, uh, which is why it's not here today. And uh, we both walked out to the astonished looks of the people on the radio station and the publicist. Fortunately, this was not on the air uh, live, but uh, they were like, oh, it's over so soon. Said, yeah, you know, James and I just kind of agreed. This wasn't really a good day for either one of us. <laughs> that's, that's one of my moments. Well, um, okay, a man named Mason Cooley once said that mistakes are the only universal form of originality. And Barrett Golding, in preparing for this, in an email said that mistakes are often the impetus for the best parts of my pieces. What, what did you mean by that, Barrett? Well, um, I don't know. That's just how it works out. I, I mean, I, I just like the sound of certain sounds. and. You know, sometimes it's in the recording and sometimes it's in the mix and things sync up and that was cool. I hadn't really planned it. And so, you you know, it's, you build a piece from there and often the, the nucleus, you know, of, of the, the kernel and the crystal is a mistake. And uh, do, do you want to play that? Yeah, let's, we're going to What we're going to hear. Yeah, it's a one-minute piece. Um, uh, it's called Bright Chrysanthemum. It's about the atom bomb in Hiroshima. It's the words of a Hiroshima survivor, uh, but read uh, by some young, well, yeah, a couple young Japanese international students that I just thought, oh, I'll just have them read it, see how it works out. And that's what I did, and, and they did a just a horrible performance. <laughs> but it turned out that all their practices, when they were trying to get the lines right, and I just rolled tape the whole time. Those were kind of wonderful at times. And I, so that's, I think, if I remember correctly, it says what's in this one-minute um, excerpt is some of the lines they delivered, but surrounded by all their trying, especially the one main character, trying to practice the lines, trying to get the lines right. They, hard, they didn't speak English that well, so they had that. And it, you'll hear, they were working with it. We call the plane B-san, Mr. B. It was very hot that morning. It was a beautiful blue sky day. 
I was watering my mommy's uh, front yard. I saw my girlfriend. I looked at the sky. I saw American plane, American airplane. Um, every day the B-29 flew over Hiroshima. B-29, B-san, every day, Mr. B. It was like a silver card angel to me. I looked at the sky and said to myself, Good morning, angel. that was about most you know more than half of that was I guess what you call outtakes it was really them practicing the lines and that became I mean all, all the way through that that was the the best takes were always the ones that weren't takes at all so that was a case where you decided that what normally would have been considered a mistake became the forefront yeah but that's not rare that's almost always the case <laughs> <laughs> That's not, I mean, right. like what I was saying before, what I'm deciding now is, you know, how to recreate right. <laughs> the ability to make mistakes. Right, right. I just want to say that I, I really like that. I like the idea of her uh, stumbling and retaking, and I, I wouldn't have thought of that particularly, but I might Well, if you heard it. how bad yeah. the reads were, well. you would have thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I was younger, and, you know, just go get some Japanese students, you know, see what happens, you know. I probably wouldn't even have made that choice nowadays. Would have hired an actress or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, Katie, can you think of any time that um, a mistake has not gone well? I mean, that something that you maybe couldn't have recovered from and used, um, but has made you a better producer in the long run having made it, or a mistake that maybe like blew the doors wide open and put you in a whole different creative sphere. No. <laughs> I mean, really, okay. my, my mistakes, um, they, they, I really, I'm not as nimble. I hope to be that way, but. Um, Yoga. <laughs> okay, I'm more about it. But um, I, really, I, uh, I'm sort of haunted by things that I didn't do right. I, I don't know if I think of them as much as mistakes or that at the time when the story was given to me, I wasn't up to it. You know, that happens a lot. And um, lately, I, I just did a four-part series for All Things Considered on my community park. And three of the pieces I feel really happy with and, and good about. Um, but of course, it's the one that I feel fell flat that really just tortures me. And, you know, I've been doing this for 23, 24 years, and you'd think that this, because it's a pretty basic mistake, and I'm, I'm going to play it for you, and, um, which is that, uh, and what's difficult about it is that it is a story that I wanted to do for about 10 years. It's about somebody in a community who sort of appoints themselves a guardian of something, like I'm going to take care of this park or this bench or something. So that's a pretty common thing, but I... 
And I found the guy in my community who did that. I watched him. I know him really well. I worked with him for years. I didn't roll tape for about two or three years. I rolled the tape. I had it for another year. I thought about it. And I still produce. For me, it was sort of a dud of a piece. And it's that I didn't find the tape to convey, I think, who he is. And then I didn't write out of it. And I didn't know it. I mean, I produced the piece, and I thought, yeah, I think it's working okay. I think, I think it is. And, but, I, you know, I knew it when it went on the air that I didn't capture this guy, Country Bobby. And, and, and we should hear that now. Okay. This is about a minute and uh, 15 seconds of the open of that piece. Cut number four. Walk through our park, and one of the first people you'll come across is Bobby. Big, burly Bobby. He's sewn pockets onto his cut-off sweatpants, and there's a hunting knife and scissors poking up. A stuffed bear hangs off his waist. Newcomers ask, should I worry about that guy? No, that's just Bobby, we say. He keeps the park clean. More people know me than I know them. People always call my name, but I don't know who they are. Bobby didn't set out to look after our park when he arrived 25 years ago and started a small garden. But he's there every day now doing what the city has no money to do and what the park group pays him a few dollars to do. He cuts weeds like he did back on his family cotton farm in South Carolina. He picks up dirty diapers in the playground, soda cans at the basketball court, and piles the overflowing trash cans onto a jury-rigged shopping cart and pushes it to the dumpster. I went yesterday morning. No, it was Friday morning. Bobby's the first to know when the water fountain backs up and when someone beheads the day lilies for fun. He doesn't call to report this, though, just laces the wilting flowers through my iron gate, and I know he's been by. Okay, but here's the thing about this, because I just heard this um, cut of tape, you know, yesterday or something, and uh, I think to, uh, the average year, nobody would consider that a mistake. Um, like, I didn't think it was a mistake when I first heard it. And, I, and this, I mean, I think that you only think it's a mistake because you had a vision of, like, perfection in your head about, you know, bringing this guy to life in a very specific way that you thought there was potential to get to. And so, you know, you might be torturing yourself, but really, and, and I think everybody, you know, knows what they want to achieve, and if it falls short, they consider it a mistake, but, like, to your average listener... It's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just that you you know it when you find you have that moment, you write the moment, or you have that moment of tape where a person is or a piece of a person is revealed, and um, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do. Um, I think my problem here and what I'm struggling with a little bit, because I've been reporting on my my neighborhood, really, I don't go really more than about a block from my house, you know, <laughs> do all these stories with long microphones. Um, but is that I, I think part of it is that I knew Bobby so well and I know so many little details that make up this whole that I sort of just thought, well, if I present him, it'll be there, but, but it's, it's not. Yeah. And you have to find that key. Right, right. And, and I, I just feel like I didn't. And then you think, well, will I ever be able to, maybe in a, in, a, in a print piece, or maybe I'll, you know, pull a Joe Frank and just go in there and <laughs> recut the piece into the archives. Um, but it's, it's that, yeah. you know. And also I feel that when I 
go interview someone, when you don't capture who they are, you've let them down too, in a way. Yeah, or so. if you get boring tape that you think is bad, then you have to write the hell out of it to mm -hmm. try and bring it to a different mm -hmm. place. And um, but let's the boring tape. Do you want me to, to play something on the right now? Yeah, let's. Yeah, let's yeah. Okay. Intro the next um, piece of tape. I want to play a piece of tape of uh, people I worked with at Weekend All Things Considered who had. It's not exactly the same experience. My interview with Bobby was very cryptic. He never said more than like two or three words to me, uh, how's it going in the park? All right, Katie. You know, and so, you know, what could I do with it? But um, Bill Abbott was a producer at NPR, and Lynn Neary was the host. It was the same show. Um, and they went to interview Leon Redbone. And they came back really with a two-way that had very little um, kind of substance. <laughs> substance, yeah. And, um, <laughs> but, um, Bill, Bill uh, as the producer, did something very interesting with it, and he talked Lynn Neary into going along with him. And so Lynn described that uh, there was this musician, she really wanted to meet him, but when they had um, the interview, that a balloon of silence hung over the interview. And this is a little longer than what we've heard, it's about three minutes. Watching him perform, I knew I had a mission to uncover the real Leon Redbone, the man beneath this character he has created. When I met him backstage, I realized it wouldn't be easy. He was still in character. I decided to take a direct approach. I'm curious about your props. The things that you bring on stage with you, what's behind the uh, sort of character that you are on stage and the props that you bring with you on stage? Just a little diversion. It helps to bring a little hilarity to the situation, depending on how things are going. Uh, sometimes necessary to rely on something other than... Uh, just to break the... Uh, the uh, Oh, I don't know what it's for. What's the idea of asking me that question anyway? <laughs> well, I said to myself, that wasn't entirely successful. Maybe I needed to warm him up a bit more. Do you have a, a good time up there doing that? Playing no, I, I never have a good time. You never have a good time? No, no. But I try. <laughs> Music. Maybe that would be the key that would unlock the mystery. Surely he'd be willing to discuss his own music. I gave it a try. Some people, because you are a, a funny man... Funny? Well, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Might a think... very serious fellow. I know, well, but you have a funny side to you. And they might think, perhaps, mm. that uh, because of that you don't uh, take your music seriously. But the music that you play, I get the feeling that you really genuinely love that kind of music. 
that right? I know it was a dumb question, but I had to get him going. What else is there? Did you grow up listening to that music? I listened to nothing else but. Why does that this kind of music endure? Why is it so appealing to so many people? Uh, you can't beat a good melody. Well, that's really all music is. Melody. Melody. Something people can sing along with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The man was definitely getting the better of me. Maybe it was the sunglasses. Anyway, at the, at the end of the interview, which they left in, uh, Lynn finally says, they produced an eight-minute music piece. Uh, Lynn finally says, okay, that's it. And Leon Redbone says, oh, you give up. You give up. <laughs> so I just admired that they left that in. You know, you, wanna, you might want to hide asking a dumb question. I mean, I always do. And, uh, but, and then Lynn sort of made fun of herself. And so I, I, I liked that. Um, uh, hope to do it one day. <laughs> well, I have all these quotes about mistakes that I have to get in here. I already skipped one. But um, let's see. Niels Bohr said, uh, an expert is a man who has made all the mistakes there are to make in a very narrow field. <laughs> and um, James Joyce said, a man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Um, and I'm wondering, when you, when you make mistakes like, um, like not reading the book, or <laughs> humiliating yourself in front of a well-known author. Um, uh, does that make you more or less willing to ma make mistakes again? Does it make you more adventuresome? Does it make you come back and say, I don't want to, you know, you know, does it make you more cautious or not? Like more, like more willing to read the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, let's hope we've learned one lesson here. Um, that would be to read the book. No, I think the thing that's um, been happening, we, we were talking a little bit about this, and especially given the, uh, the advent of, of digital. Um, at, at KQED, the, the digital conversion was very recent, and they've been doing things a lot on reel-to-reel and multi-machine mixes. And one of the things that happens with that is that there is that, you know, the multi-machine dance, which some people, you know. Here remember. Uh, here remember. <laughs> they do. And you're sort of, you know, going between all the machines and starting them up. And um, <clears throat> there's this preciseness about digital, which I think is making the chance to make these mistakes a little bit harder uh, sometimes. I mean, I know for those that have worked in some versions of this stuff, it's a little bit easy to sort of, you know, drop a file somewhere and it just sometimes disappears and something might happen from that. But um, having made these mistakes is, I don't know what it's done for me, only, only the fact that I could, you know, that, that it's okay to make them. Because I'm a little bit bothered by the concept of a mistake uh, in, in the first place because, you know, what really is this thing? You know, if we're not actually sort of just trying to do something, and if we don't sort of, you know, if, if it's all perfect all the time, then where's the, you know, where's the sort of that random variable uh, that's in there? So um, there's another quote I wanted to add to this, which is, luck is a residue of design. So, and that was by that great philosopher, um, Branch Rickey. And so there's, the, the, but, it's, but it's a really, there's something to this, and I think that, you know, with enough sort of practice, and it is a practice, 
for that because I don't. I hope that I never perfect this whole thing. This is I think what you're what you're thinking of, Barrett, is that you know with enough practice you can sort of you know try these things and hopefully something will come out of it. So, have I learned to stop making mistakes? Having worked a lot in digital, in a, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. No, I haven't learned to stop making mistakes. And do you guys feel like it makes you more or less cautious in, in the next time you go out to do something? Does it make you um, go into an, I mean, if you ask an interview, if you do an interview and all you get is yes or no answers, does it make you bring a longer list next time? Or, you know what I mean? Does it make you clam up because you feel bad about a, an error or a mistake? Or do you just, does it blow open the doors because you're like, oh, you know, who cares? No, I mean, I think what I would do uh, is, that, no, I would definitely go at it again. I have that luxury, actually, that the people that I'm interviewing, I can just run into them the next day and say, you know, there were a few things I forgot to ask you, and go interview them again. Or in his case, I think I just needed to just hang out with him for maybe like five yeah. days and roll tape. Um, and so, no, it doesn't. It just... Uh, and maybe I won't do it the next time. I'll know before I produce a piece and send it in that something's off. Yeah. Well, we also struck upon a notion that I want to bring up um, in talking about this subject, and that is how much does patience play a role? Katie said that she saves all her tape, like all her tape. Which I said tape. You know, it's like must be a whole, you know, museum by now. But um, which means that she can go back and redo something. And how much, see, seeing as how everybody up here has been at it for at least a decade or two, um, how, how much does patience play a role? Um, and you had that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, here's another lost uh, opportunity. I think I was probably about 22 or 23. And NPR had a series on Latin American writers called Faces, Mirrors, Masks. And by a fluke, I got assigned, somebody got sick, and I got assigned Garcia Marquez. And nobody thought that anybody would get an interview with Garcia Marquez. He had just won the Nobel Prize. I think it was 83. And, um, and they just thought, well, you just do it with the actors sort of as a documentary. But I actually went down to Columbia and I went and I drank a lot of beer with his best friend who's a painter. And I got the friend to call Garcia Marquez in Cartagena. And he did call Garcia Marquez, put me on the phone with him. And right then, from the first minute, Garcia Marquez started playing this game with me. He gave me a new name. I was Vicky. And yes, I could come. But when I got to Bogota to see him, I had to call him. And I'd say, hi, it's Katie Davis. And he would hang the phone up. And I'd call back and say, hi, it's Vicky. And he'd talk to me. So this thing went on and on and on. And it was, it was beautiful. And I was rolling tape. I was, I was actually with Leo de la Guerra. And we, I rolled, but we rolled tape on the whole thing. I get back. I'm 23. I put that aside. Didn't he like send you on some? Oh yeah, he sent me all over Bogota, and he played these games with me. And I got finally got the secret instructions to go to his door. <laughs> and I said, "It's Katie Davis." And the guy wouldn't let me in. And I went back in, and Leo said, "Say you're Vicky," you know. And I did. And um, he gave me a gift. He gave me a story. He's very Marquesian, and I didn't know it. I came back. And I, I was like 22, 23. I came back and I produced a piece 
like everybody else's piece with a big deep voice actor saying and having, we had Hector Elizondo read the stuff and that tape was just little tiny boxes of reel to reel tape recorded on an agua. Um, and I knew that it was wonderful. Anyways, I just, I just wasn't there yet. I didn't have the ability to think about it. Some people do, and bless their hearts. But now that I'm 44, I figured it out, and I have the tape, and he's coming out with a book of memoirs, and I'm thinking, I have a nice piece to pitch. So, you know, for anybody, you know, I just feel like you can recoup them, not all of them, but, um, but you can fix them. <laughs> I'm into fixing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Barrett, does that does that work into your stuff? I mean, when you look at it now, do you feel like you missed, you know, opportunities long time ago? Uh, yeah, I miss them every day, you know. Um, <laughs> By the way, he told us his whole life is a mistake yeah. earlier on. So I just want Be, to being it. in public radio, obviously, you've made some bad choices before, <laughs> and, you know, and you know, but. I mean, we were talking yesterday, and they were saying all their experiences interviewing famous people, asking embarrassing questions, not asking the right questions. I never talk to famous people. I don't like to talk to anybody that's really been interviewed, like a scientist that's been interviewed a few times. I mean, they hardly any have, hardly ever have anything to say um, that sounds good to me. I like the sound of a, you know, I like spontaneity and all that. And you get that from regular folk. You don't get it from people who are practiced with these things. It, just, it will never happen again. You know how you, when you're trying to narrate and, you're try, and you sound like an announcer and you say, sound conversational. Well, it's hard because that is the mode you get into when you're used to microphones. So um, my, I was mentioning yesterday, one of my biggest mistakes is, you know, a little life learning lesson. My neighbor's 90, and he would have made a cool interview. And, of course, I could always get him, but before I did, he died, you know. I lived next to him for about three or four years, never walked the 20 feet. <laughs> I walked there, but never with my recorder, so he died. And that's something, you know, that doesn't just, you know, that lesson isn't just for radio. <laughs> Take your opportunity when you can get it. The other thing is... The opportunity, doing what you're supposed to do, you know, preparing for the interview, all that stuff you people do. I hate, I don't like doing any of that. That's my worst tape always, you know. I like to, you know, we're all fairly smart people. That's why we got into public radio. That's why our stuff's so goddamn boring because it's all smart, you know. The regular people out there are, are maybe not as what we consider smart, but they have much more interesting to say, things to say than smart people often do. And, and uh, because there's, you know, it, there's guts and reality out there, and, and that's what I like, you know, emotion and things like that. And, and, and you don't get that but traveling across country. Am I babbling? No, <laughs> traveling no. across country. Just now I'm, I'm doing some things. Day-to-day uh, -day wants to do uh, why I live here, ask people why I live here. So I thought I'd give that a try. That's not a bad question to ask people. And, it, it, you know, at first I thought it was the wrong question, but it, I, I was just approaching the wrong people. And I thought, I looked at a map, and I saw Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, and I saw, I love going down by the river, because sometimes you meet some old folks that just, like, retired, and that's what they do with their morning. And so I thought I'd find some people. I found nobody, nobody, nobody. I did the exact right thing and went to just where I should have and didn't get anything. And on my way there, I was traveling there, and I realized I had just come from Sturgis. I bought Jay Allison a T-shirt. Where's Jay? <laughs> Getting your T-shirt. He likes Harleys. But anyway, um, 
And all these great ladies were working at the Harley-Davidson job. And I'm like 20 miles away, and I'm thinking, that would have been automatic, great tape. But I'm going to Rapid City because it has a little park. You know what I mean? It's something I had in my head. So those are the mistakes I make every day. And I only hope that I can compress them and make I don't think it's ever going to go away. It's, it's like the old man who died, you know, not seeing a relative before they die. It's, that's, that's, we all got that. And, you know, but maybe you can compress the time before you know, between the mistake and, and correcting it, that's, I think that's all you can hope for. I'd, I'd just add that I, I think you can get too attached to what you have in your head, mm -hmm. and you have it somewhat planned out, and you can get stuck there. On the other hand, you know, if you're pitching a story, you do have to think about it a little. Um, we don't always have a, a chance to just go out and see what you get. So it's that fine balance between imagining what you might find and being but on being, deadline. Yeah, deadline's a whole other thing. Dead but then just line. being... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I was telling Tom Lopez... By, by the way, Tom Lopez said something to me about mistakes, too, and he wanted to try something new, and I thought, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I can try something new. He's, he's even older than me, and, and he's going to do a, a... What is it? A, when it sounds around, uh, the next thing he's going to call it Ruby 6.1, not Ruby 7, because it's a little experiment. So... You know, maybe there are things to try new, but uh, oh, now I forgot what, what did he thought. say. What did he say? Well, he, he said something to you. Oh, no, I forgot. Oh, okay. Forget it. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait. Well, Michael had a Yeah, I also was thinking about a couple of things related to what you were saying. There was a, um, a singer at the corner of uh, Broadway and Columbus in San Francisco, this older Chinese gentleman who used to sit out. Uh, many days standing on the corner of this rather busy kind of touristy spot right between Chinatown and North Beach. And he would sing at the top of his lungs, just crowing these, you know, these songs in Chinese. You know, with such great enthusiasm. And I walked up to him one day and sort of asked him what he was doing. And I had always meant to get back and tape him. And of course, he disappeared into the winds of history somehow. Um, and, and then there was another incident where... As a, resu as a result, as a result Well, as a result, what I've learned from that is now <laughs> is that I carry my recorders with me everywhere. 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 All the time. All the time. I have one on me now. <laughs> um, I was at the, at the little uh, gallery, uh, gallery thing last night. I had my mics on. And so those of you who are talking to me, beware. Um, it was, and I've just kind of learned now, I mean, given the size of the mini-disc recorders right now and the quality of the microphones and the size of them now that are coming out, there's almost no excuse not to have a recorder on you all the time. Um, and so that's what I kind of learned from that is to, you know, if I have this idea and I carry around, I've carried around a lot of ideas in my head, but, you know, just... I have to get much more spontaneous about going out and just chasing them down and trying them and talking to people. It drives my wife crazy. You know, I, I'm kind of, you know, we'll be somewhere and I'll just start, I'll go into interview mode with somebody. I won't whip out a recorder usually, but uh, I'll have it with me. But, um, but sometimes I'll just start engaging in these conversations with people. And I think it's a part of this natural kind of conversation that you can indulge in. And you have to kind of forget about your ego and put that behind and sort of step out from that. That's one thing I've learned uh, through this little business. Um, another thing that relating to what Katie was saying about having this idea in your head of something. Um, 
when we were first doing some of the lost and found sound brainstorming uh, in San Francisco, um, we were at Davia's uh, house, just kind of just kicking around these ideas, and I had this idea about uh, Sergei Krikalev, who was the astronaut who was stuck up in Mir when the Soviet Union broke up. And I thought, oh, God, what a wonderful piece that would make, kind of, you know, and I actually arranged to, you know, to go to NASA and to, you know, you just happened to be working on the space shuttle, and I went to Houston, the Johnson Space Center, and got the little time with him, and he strolls up in his little, you know, flight suit and everything, was his moment out from training, and the interview sucked. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was just very flat. I mean, what I ended up doing with it later was turning into some a very kind of spacey piece for late night radio with some you know some very kind of you know rain 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 kind of you know space music under it and sort of chopping him up and having him you know do the fly from planet to fly from planet you know just sort of looping him and things uh, which which wasn't too bad but it wasn't that original sort of wonderful idea that I thought it would be but it was worth going to get that because there still may be something in that idea somewhere uh, also coming up in, in the conversations for that, and that's where I was sort of shooting off my mouth in these brainstorming conversations. I was uh, talking with this guy named Tim in these uh, lost and found sound brainstorming things, and he was, because he was, he was talking back and forth and kicking these ideas around, and he said, yeah, you know, he said, you know, my friend Carl was like, you know, sleeping on my couch one day, and we were talking about this stuff, and I was just sort of chatting with him, and, and then I realized he was talking about Carl Sagan. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, God, I'm, I'm completely out of my league here. But, but it was something that, again, it was just a matter of just taking this sort of chance and making this sort of, you know, not, you know, just, just trying to get your ego to disappear in these cases. And I think that that's something that can be very helpful, not only in interviews, but also, you know, just as you, as you roll around and just uh, do things in life. Uh, well, I just have to get a few more quotes in here. Frank Lloyd Wright said, The physician can bury his mistakes, but the architect can only advise his clients to plant vines. That would probably work for radio, too. <laughs> and Woody Allen said, Harvard makes mistakes, too, you know. Henry Kissinger taught there. <laughs> so, um, all right, I want to get to two more pieces of tape quickly, and then we'll take some questions. One is... Um, Barrett's Changed the World, and I actually, if you don't mind not introducing it, I want to just play it, and then you can say why you think it's a mistake. All right, so uh, this is number nine. How would I change the world? Wow. How would I change the world? How would I change the world? Gosh, I've never asked that before. If I could change the world, there would be no hungry people. I would make more trout streams and less skyscrapers. How would I change the world? Oh, I have an answer. Fewer people. The problem that I see with the world is population. How would I change the world? I'd get rid of the administrators. No taxes. No taxes. No taxes. That's all I know. No taxes. If you could, I would legislate kindness. I realize I probably can't change the world all by myself, so that doesn't mean I can't try. I would find a cure for malaria, because that's the single disease that affects most people in the world. I love to change the world.
I'd change the world. I would change the world. Consider that I'm homeless. I would start from the homeless people first. Homeless vets that fought for this country, which they, they don't have a place to live. I would try to change things to make it more better. Yes. No, First of all, that's a rough mix, really rough mix. Talk um, a little into your mind. Okay, sorry. Uh, um, and the reason that is a mistake is because I did everything right. I mean everything. It's like the Barrett Golding patented audio art manufacturing center. <laughs> uh, go across the country, ask everybody the same sent uh, uh, same question. You know, get one of your friends to do some killer music, and uh, and just slap it together. You know what's what. It's easy, right? Well, you know, this piece sucks, <laughs> and it will continue to suck. It will be done someday, but I don't know what the answer is. I do know the question is wrong. People don't emote. To, that's, they don't, when they get asked that question, they don't give me stuff that's, I mean, it's all kind of good, you know, it's all kind of good, but that's not, at least that music is pretty killer, you know, those uh, teenagers singing, um, so you know I'm not going to waste it until it's it's uh, right, and that's what is the mistake, and that's why this piece will continue to suck, and it might take years, but um, and I got to find out the right question, or I think actually I have to like get. Just, I'm starting with sound. I've been talking with the musician about this, maybe because it's actually his idea. And so it's his fault. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that's the mistake. Is doing everything right is always a mistake, and will always lead to perfectly nice public radio fare. <laughs> and that's why this sucks. By Barrett Golden. Um, all right, I uh, this is our last piece of tape, and then we'll take some questions. Um, this is because uh, the intro to this tape. Uh, is something it's something I produced um, and the story behind it is that all things considered I was working on the show at the time and they came to me and asked me to do a tape for Val a story for Valentine's Day and um, uh, earlier now sidebar my father is a terrible snorer and for years I had been threatening to go into his room in the middle of the night and record him and over the previous Christmas I, I did and I just had the, and then I sat down with my mom for maybe like mm, four or five minutes and talked to her about it. And I had that tape. And when All Things Considered came to me and said, do you want to do a piece for Valentine's Day? I said, sure. And I set out doing a piece about snoring. And I logged like 200 miles on my car. I drove to sleep clinics. I interviewed doctors. I talked to couples who had come apart over their snoring. I talked to women who were wearing masks that forced oxygen into their lungs so that they weren't snoring and it was really like, looked like a gas mask. And I mean, and I had this terrible head cold and I was just like doing, getting so much tape and I was so miserable and I couldn't figure out what I was doing. And uh, my friend, Mary Beth Kirshner, who many of you know, you know, I was telling her like, ah, and she's like, I don't know what you're doing because you have this tape in your drawer. I don't know why you're going to hell and gone to do this piece when you've got this, this cassette in your drawer, you could be doing that. And then, and it was get the deadline was coming out. So within like two days, um, I scrapped all that tape and I used this tape and that's all I used. Well, I, I added one thing 
Um, and it became uh, like a signature piece for me. And if she had never called me, God knows. So, I, I mean, so for sometimes you just have to get somebody else's perspective and, you know, even if you don't want it sometimes to knock you into some sense. Um, and here's the tape. It's number 10. My father's snoring is only one of the many aspects of my parents' long and most of the time happy marriage that I will probably never understand. How he can be so loud and constant, and she's such a light sleeper, and somehow they remain in the same bed for decades. Up until now, I've passed things like this off as one of the great mysteries of survival inside a lifelong relationship. But after 31 years of listening and wondering, I decided that it was high time to get to the bottom of things. Has Dad always snored? Only when he sleeps. How long have you been married now? 41 years. And he's snored like this for how long? 41 years. Did you notice this on your honeymoon or what? Yes. By then it was too late. There were times when I would confront him and he either would deny that he snored or would say, what can I do? Mr. Maxey's office, this is Marie. May I help? Hi, Marie. It's Gwen. Is Dad there? Sure. Hold on. Thanks. Hello, Gwenny. Hi, Dad. How are you? Hi, sweetheart. How are you doing? Okay. I want to play something for you over the phone since I'm at work, okay? Yeah. Okay, so just listen up. I'm okay. listening. But is it five minutes, ten minutes? Oh, no, 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 much less than that. I have time. I just wanted to know how long I should be prepared to. Okay, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Who is that? Who is it? Yeah. What do you mean, who is it? You, you taped me? Yeah, that's you. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Mark puts up with? No. <laughs> that's funny. Poor woman. <laughs> I want to move to the um, end of the piece to hear just a little bit, little bit of the end. It's coming up. Is there an equivalent to snoring that you have to put up with from her? No, no, no. Yeah, well, constant bitching, but that's okay. I'm accustomed to it. I don't mind it. In fact, I miss it when nobody picks on me. Why do you think she puts up with you and your snoring? Well, I have no idea. I did a, I'm very rich. I'm very handsome. I'm very good in bed. Or who knows? Who knows what attracts somebody to somebody else who tortures her with not being able to sleep night after night, right? Um, 
Anyway, thank you. I cannot pass up this opportunity to just say that getting that piece on the air was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. They, they pulled it, they pulled it because I had a piece on Morning Edition and didn't run it for another two weeks. And it was a long story, but just wanted to well, throw in my sour grapes. I got a question. Why, why did you interview your father on the phone? Because that was a mistake. <laughs> you should have put him in the studio, but it just flowed in perfectly. Yeah. Why did you make that mistake? <laughs> <laughs> I had no choice. He was in Chicago, mm -hmm. and I was in D.C. They have mics in Chicago. Well, but I didn't want, I wanted it to be a co complete, out of the blue surprise. Uh, I didn't want him to know perfect. that I was, I wanted to just, get, in fact, I set it up. My father's very, very compulsive about time. And I had called him earlier in the day to tell him that I was going to call him and that I needed three minutes of his time. I didn't tell him I was going to record him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever told him I was recording him until. He heard the piece. Till the lawsuit. Right, till the lawsuit, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd have to borrow money from him. Was that ethical? <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, I want to give you uh, one more quote, and then if there's any questions, we'd be happy to take them. Um, and this quote is uh, our closing quote. Inexplicably, in 1988, George Bush Sr. said of the Reagan-Bush administration, I'm proud to be his partner. We've had triumphs, we've made mistakes, we have had sex. <laughs> and that is what I want to leave you with. <laughs> so if you have any questions, we would be happy to take them. Yes. At uh, KPFA, a young producer was thrown on the air uh, with no training, and she was going to do her own board operating on this particular day, and she had recorded a speech at a political demonstration earlier in the day. And at one point in the speech, uh, the person who was speaking said the word shit, and she knew that she had to do something about that when she was going to put it on the air. But having no training, she didn't have a clue what to do about it. She knew that in the past she had heard tones or beeps superimposed over dirty words. So her plan, since she knew exactly where the word occurred, was just before the word she would pull down the fader on the tape recorder, push up the microphone, and say, beep. <laughs> the time came, she pulled down the fader on the tape recorder, pushed up the microphone, and said, shit. <laughs> Everybody in the radio station knew immediately exactly what had happened, and people were literally rolling on the floor. <laughs> I did want to say one or two quick serious things about mistakes, because they're one of my favorite subjects. Um, Sometimes I, uh, my name's Randy Tom, and I used to work in radio, but I uh, mostly work in movies these days. But when I go do talks about movie sound at film schools like USC and UCLA, um, I, one of the things, maybe the most important thing I think I need to tell the students there 
is about this thing that I call the tyranny of competence, which is which runs rampant in LA and in the media biz in general, which is if you're a real professional, you know what you're doing, you know your craft, you don't make mistakes. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Anytime you try to do something new, and as an artist, you're obliged to try to do new things, anytime you do something new, you make mistakes, no matter how long you've been doing it. And anybody who's been at any form of art very seriously for very long knows that very often the very best things that you do happen when you're most desperate, most lost, most sure that it's not going to work, that you're going to fall on your face, and it's 3 or 4 a.m., or it's you know five minutes before you're going to go on the air. Unfortunately, the worst things come out of those same moments. <laughs> Uh, but you can't have one without the other, unfortunately. Uh, but what I like to say is um, a great craftsperson knows how to avoid mistakes, and a great artist knows how to use them. So true. Randy Tom, who wrote the book, by the way. Um, which reminds me, what's this, what was the saying? Um, it, oh, takes it takes a keen eye to recognize the difference between a false start and a dead end. So. That's a rough one. Yeah. Yes. Uh, my name's Deepa, and this question is for the whole panel, and it's about pre-interviewing. And I've had lots of experiences where I wanted to make sure the interview was worth my time, either because it was going to be a pain to get there or whatever. And it was a mistake to have done that pre-interview because they never said it the same way again. They felt self-conscious. And I'm just wondering, when is pre-interview, assuming there's not a lot of deadline pressure, when is pre-interviewing a mistake and when is it not? I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't get the last. When is it what? When is it a mistake and when is it not a mistake? To re-interview. Pre-interview. Beforehand. I think it's always a mistake. Something about the mic is muddy. Yeah. It's always yeah. a mistake. Always a mistake. Never. <laughs> I, would, I, I, I personally would never pre-interview. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll um, take a different approach to that. Um, I think there is something to say to spending time with people before you roll tape. Now, this will be different oh, from other people. Absolutely. Um, Katie has ethics. I don't, so that's the difference. <laughs> um, no, really, I just um, – and I always used to – pretty much not do too much pre-interviewing and go in and roll tape from the instant I almost walked in the door. And I'm not saying what I do now is right, it's just what I'm doing now. But um, I, can, I can be with a person for 10 hours before I ever roll tape. And that, what that is just getting me is a lot of intimacy um, and trust. Uh, so I think every situation is, is, is different. And I, I mean, I, I also agree that, of course, you, you know, you want to make sure your interviewer, interviewee feels comfortable. I mean, you don't walk in with your head. I, I don't. I Some don't know. But do yeah. 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 I don't yeah. walk in with my headphones on and mic out. You do. Oh, you yeah. do. So, so it's see, different. I, I wouldn't do that. And I'd be right in between. I would, like, yeah. make sure everybody feels good, bring out my mic, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So I guess to each his own. I mean. I don't think there's any steadfast rule about it, though. What had come up for me sometimes is that 
and again, the situations are going to be different, whether you're traveling to somebody's house who you've made this big arrangement for, uh, whether you're a station-based uh, producer who is taking somebody who is basically delivered to you, who's on the circuit, so they're kind of used to talking. I think pre-interviewing can, can be valuable uh, when you have uh, perhaps an intern or somebody who has a, a well-trained ear. If you have somebody who can't, you know, who isn't just an emotive speaker, you know, on a certain topic, and you need someone to be that emotive, uh, you know, and it could be a matter of just spending time with them mm -hmm. if you have the luxury of doing oh. that. Mm -hmm. um, when we were doing stuff for the uh, Native American series, we had to do a lot of not necessarily pre-interviewing, but we had to set up stuff a lot. We couldn't just show up mm -hmm. at, you know, at a reservation or at a Pueblo and just walk in with our mics and start waving them around because we would get nothing. We would mm -hmm. get absolutely nothing. We, you know, people would just either refuse to talk to you or they just wouldn't tell you uh, the truth. And that's, you know, and that's a case where there's a little bit of setup is good, but I always felt that pre-interviewing or sometimes even knowing too much about a topic can be detrimental because you have all these things in your head and you make all these assumptions and all these presumptions about what's going to go on. So I'd say the less uh, pre-interviewing, probably the better.